Greetings, everyone. It's good to be back with you and all those who are still arriving. Let's welcome them and, of course, ourselves um, with our initial sitting. So prepare yourself for um, five minutes of Zazen uh, together.
in our um, verse of the robe. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction, wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction, wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction, wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. good to be back with everyone and it's especially um, joyful to be back with you because I wasn't sure how uh, things would be given the uh, close encounter with Hurricane Douglas here in the Pacific earlier in the week but we were fortunate uh, that it uh, skirted us just with a little glancing blow and not any damage or not too much difficulty. I was thinking as we were sitting just now though, that uh, the the image, and it's certainly not a new one, you've considered it, I'm sure, the, the very peaceful space at the very center of this giant storm that covers thousands of miles. Um, I was thinking as we were sitting, um, it is like being in that returning to the center where things are uh, peaceful uh, without denying the swirl around us and the various uh, powers that uh, that life brings that swirl and some are uh, gentle and life-giving and some are difficult and challenging uh, but we can come to the center in the place of peace and maybe rest for a moment and remember who we are in that space as we meet what comes next I also was thinking about uh, a line from uh, one of our, uh, one of the old teachers, where it says, a hair's breath's deviation and heaven and earth are set apart. And in that line, there's um, the intimation that it doesn't take very much to um, find ourselves in delusion or off course and in some way that makes all the difference in the world. And that came to me as, Aaron and I were watching the, the radar and we watched the hurricane move slowly above uh, the island of Maui and then over towards Molokai and then it just bumped north a little bit. And one of the um, weather forecasters said those, those wobbles that the hurricane makes, the, the computer draws a straight line, but those little wobbles, he said quite dramatically, make the difference between whether you lose your house or not. A hair's breadth deviation and heaven and earth are set apart. Small differences in our way of seeing and perceiving, of meeting each other and caring for ourselves, makes a big difference in the world, and it, it always makes a difference. We're certainly seeing some of those ways uh, in which um, individual isolated incidents are the spark or the hair's breadth that 
opens up everything in our culture, whether it's socially, racially, economically, politically, personally, uh, in our health. <clears throat> so we return to practice. We return to that calm center, the place uh, where we remember who we are and what we're about. Um, as some of you uh, may know something about uh, presence seeing or Otto Scharmer's theory you, whether you do or not, it's not important. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful way of, <laughs> this is interesting, uh, a, a German intellectual from MIT in a corporate setting describing the spiritual path. It's very unlikely and quite beautiful. But what he talks about is that in intervening in corporate settings, the question that he asks people is, who am I and what is my work? But it's actually a deeply uh, powerful question about our vow. Who am I? Do I align with my deepest and truest nature and practice that in Zazen and all my other practices? And what is my work? What do I offer my life to? And that's what I want to focus on today. We've been uh, slowly through the, the weeks going through the different chants that we do at the request of many people. There are a lot of people online now who have not uh, <clears throat> uh, are not familiar with them, haven't used them before, and want to understand their, their meaning. And we started with the verse of the, the Han, which calls us to practice the great matter of birth and death. Um, we then went to repentance confession, where we look at ourselves fully and realize who has arrived once we're called to practice. We then uh, study the refuges. Where do we actually rest and wh where do we place our faith once we're, once we're home and once we're beginning to look deeply, rather than in our conditioning and something more worthy of our faith. And invoking the very heart of practice, which is the Four Noble Truths or the Four Practice Principles, as we see how we can be caught in the self-centered dream and cling to that, how we can use each moment as a teacher and begin to embody the way of compassion, and how we're resting in that all the time, uh, which is evidenced by the chant we just did, wearing the universal teaching, this formless field of benefaction, which unifies and helps us understand the one, one true nature. If all that is true, then if all those uh, guidelines or stepping stones are ones that we want to follow, then how do we take this practice out into the world? And this is where we meet ourselves in our contemporary culture. How do we bring this forward in ways that make a difference? And the foundation of our entire practice path in this tradition is the Bodhisattva vow. Um, <clears throat> I will um, put it up for you so you can take a look at it as we've done in the past. Uh, for those of you that don't, don't have it with you or are unfamiliar with it, <clears throat> The, um, 
the little image I chose, you know, I'm always, I always love images that evoke something. That, there's a, a classic picture of Suzuki Roshi next to her, his, uh, next to him is my teacher, Blanche Hartman, how they were joined literally in their transmission of the Dharma at the San Francisco Zen Center. And then sitting in front of it is a mala that a dear, dear friend of mine brought from China, from uh, Dongshan's monastery, which is the source of Chan uh, and the source of our lineage. These are the vows that carry them forward. And this is the way in which we begin to chant the vows now. Um, there are various translations. This is what we use at Apamala. We say that beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. And Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. So we're, we're invoking a vow, which is a commitment that we make, a guiding direction. And as many of you have heard before, and I think it's worth repeating, a vow is very different than a goal. A goal is something you can set for yourself with the expectation and the commitment to actually reach it and satisfy it. A vow is not something you can satisfy or reach. It's an ongoing endless commitment and direction that guides your life. In fact, if you look at these four lines, you see that by definition, they're all impossible. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them all. If they're num that, that's actually an impossible task. So it isn't a task. It's a direction to which you're offering yourself. If delusions are inexhaustible and you vow to end them all, once again, an impossible task, but what you commit yourself to. Dharma gates uh, is a term that suggests opportunities for awakening, gates that can open and through which you can pass and learn something, transform yourself, um, transform others or situations into a more uh, wholesome direction. These are the gates of, that we pass through in practice on the way. So those gates are boundless. They always open to us. And you vow to enter every one of them. And then Buddha's way, not the Buddha necessarily just of northern India, but the way of awakening is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it, to bring it forward through this body. But it's unsurpassable. So once again, these are impossible to achieve, but quite possible to realize and to embody and to express. And these are the differences between goals and vows. And the vow of our tradition, which is sometimes spoken of as the Mahayana tradition, is a tradition where your practice is not an individual practice and it actually isn't for you solely. There are practices that we do for ourselves, which are wholesome and good and helpful and healthy and really great. Uh, but as, as an example, our practices, especially the core practice of Zazen, is not exactly meditation. It's not an individual yogic practice that you engage in to get a benefit. 
It's a ceremony that you step into and embody over and over and over to express your true nature as a Buddha and to embody and manifest it so you can carry it forward into your life. So our vow, it doesn't say, um, I'm going to take care of myself and wake up and become a great yogi. It says, no, beings are numberless and I'm going to commit, I'm going to take up the practice of freeing them. Delusions, difficulties, the swirl of the hurricane just keeps on going and I'm going to work to shelter from that and help people get free of the delusional systems they're caught in. There are opportunities all the time for awakening and I'm going to just use every single one of them because that's my direction. And the way of the, the Buddha, the awakened way, is kind of the best thing around. It's the only game in town if you commit yourself to this, so I'm going to embody it and express myself in that way. This is the vow of a Bodhisattva. It's like Someone said once to me, oh, it's like the North Star. It's the thing that orients you all the time. This is our vow as a Bodhisattva. But if you imagine for a moment that this is a practice and a practice vow that isn't just personal, we're actually practicing for all beings. Then the second time we chant it, and, and you've already uh, seen week after week that we do things in threes here. Then the second time we chant it, we change the pronoun. Beings are numberless and we vow. This is a shared activity that arises between and among us. And it's a shared aspiration. It's not just an individual practice. We vow to end delusions. We vow to enter Dharma gates. And as a body, as a Sangha, as a community, we vow to embody this direction which um, takes our life forward in the way that we hope and practice. The third time uh, we chant it, we take it from the personal in the first one to the collective and relational to the universal, the largest sense at all. And, and this uh, really is powerful, I think, uh, when one, one chants it. And please know that these innovations uh, came to Peg, my teaching partner, Peg Cyberson, out of our, our shared work together as we developed this relational practice. But her use of language and her insight was what developed this shift. So in the last one we chant, beings are numberless, this vow frees them all. This vow ends delusion. This vow enters every Dharma gate. This vow is the embodiment of the Bodhisattva way. So it's quite a powerful vow, quite a potent chant. And it's something um, as we offer our lives to this is really transformative and quite different than the culture, at least in the West, of individuality. And even the imported um, yogic cultures of individual practice. It's not a way of turning inward and just cultivating powers or relaxation. It's a way of sitting and opening outward. 
for the benefit of all beings. <clears throat> There's one other piece I wanted to add to this, just for those of you who are also interested in this overlap between what we often call a psychological transformation and uh, this larger vow of, um, with, with all beings. There are qualities of a bodhisattva uh, which we speak about, and this is a whole other workshop, but I, but I want to make a point by making these lists for you. Bodhisattvas are understood to uh, have qualities of the immeasurable, the four immeasurables, the Brahma Viharas, of loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, and sympathetic joy. And if you wonder who the bodhisattvas are, they're you and me and everyone else. That's our, our nature that we practice to unfold and express completely. It isn't some rarefied uh, kind of thing. But these are qualities that, that we possess when we're not caught in self-centeredness, caught in reactivity, uh, caught by um, just our, our histories and our compulsions and our automatic patterns. Dogen said that uh, body, uh, in ordinary people are dragged by karma and bodhisattvas are led by vow. It's, um, it's an old-fashioned way of saying, without practice, you're pulled around by your conditioning. When you make a vow like this, then you have a way of being led, and so that you, you can realize the loving-kindness that is a capacity you have. How do you unfold and express that? Your own compassion, loving-kindness being... Um, um, a kind of a, a, a gentle friendliness, compassion, a way of responding to suffering, equanimity, a kind of a balance in the midst of the storm, um, and sympathetic joy is the joy for the other. And there are practices of a bodhisattva, which are called the paramitas, which are listed here. Once again, this is a whole other retreat. Generosity, uh, if you're practicing in this way, you offer yourself to the world. You're ethical and moral. You're not trying to hurt. Uh, you have some sort of patience or forbearance in the midst of difficulties. You're diligent or have energy uh, to bring to bear to each situation. As you cultivate uh, concentration or meditation and wisdom, that's, that's very deep. If you look at these qualities, Imagine what it was like if these were infused in everything that everyone did at every level. Uh, what if this was part of the statement of every police department, of every corporation, of every political party? Oh, these are the things we're going to develop. I, I know it's a little far-fetched to say it that way, but it's sort of interesting. So there are qualities of the Bodhisattva. And there are practices of the Bodhisattva. Now, the alternative list, not alternative, but the comparative list I have here are qualities from internal family systems, which are qualities which they call self, uh, which in Buddhism is like no self. It's the, the qualities of what it's like for a Bodhisattva to step forward, how we embody and manifest these things. And they're cleverly made into 
uh, a list of things that start with a C and we don't have to go into it at all. But when you are free of your conditioning, when you're like in your true self and you're really in the most open hearted, relaxed, clear headed space, you can feel your connection with everything. You feel curious about the world. Compassion flows easily. There's a sense of clarity and calmness. You might even feel courageous and somewhat confident and creative in the world. So these are uh, qualities that come naturally as you practice the, the Bodhisattva vow. The key, the reason I'm doing this is because both lists are about that first line, freeing all beings. But we think sometimes freeing all beings out there, but also we're freeing all beings in here, all the parts of us. So the freedom goes both inside and outside in opening us, freeing us, being an agent of freedom. That's the real point. That it's not just I'm going to put myself aside and be a murderer to helping others. I, I'm included. And there are parts of me that require these same qualities. So if you take a look at the Bodhisattva vow in the classical way, just with that first reading, you can, and this is just for those of you who are interested in this kind of thing, you can, you can think of them a little different. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. An outward turn. Let's do the inward turn. Parts of me, parts are numberless. I vow to take up the practice of freeing them. You know, from the places they're stuck, from their extreme positions, from the places they're burdened. This is what we do often in personal work. And in doing so, then we can more easily offer ourselves in the world because we're not so triggerable. If delusions are inexhaustible and we want to end those, turning inward, we notice that confusion, contractions, you know, can always be triggered. We're human. So I'm going to take up the practice of clarifying the roles of these parts of me, helping them relax and calling forward their gifts. If in our tradition, we say that everything has Buddha nature, then guess what? Every single part of us, even the parts we don't like or we think are harsh or kind of crazy, there's a jewel at the center. Once they relaxed, once they understand they can change, I'm talking as if they're different beings, but that's a useful way to do it, to call forward the gifts that they have. Dharma gates are boundless. Well, in fact, opportunities to learn from the present are boundless. And I want to take up the practice of learning from every moment, every relationship, every part of me that arises without exception. Everything belongs. And everything is a potential uh, teaching. Remember that line, each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. And Buddhist way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. Continuing to turn toward life as it is, leading from our true self, which is Buddha nature in this case, is unsurpassable. I take up the practice of embodying this energy, those qualities of a bodhisattva I mentioned a while ago, uh, the four Brahma-viharas and the practices of the Paramitas, meeting life as it is, intimate with everything. There are ways to translate and play with. You might come up with your own um, 
as you reflect on what it means to take a kind of a vow, or in this case, I'm saying we take up the practice of offering ourselves to the world uh, for the benefit of all beings rather than just the benefit of this one. So that's a bit of a, uh, a way of thinking about the Bodhisattva vows. It's a vow I take, it's a vow that we share, it's a vow that is unfolding and comes back to us as freedom. And we do this both inside for all of those beings or parts in us, and we do it on the outside. That's the full capacity for which we're um, actually made and can bring forward. <clears throat> so uh, I think that's probably enough. It's quite a bit. <laughs> But I wanted to orient you to that vow as well. And you can see uh, from the things that we have um, taken a look at over the, the weeks, this is really a path of practice, being called to practice, turning toward ourselves with honesty, resting in what we can have faith in, working with the heart of practice to turn us towards everyday life instead of self-centeredness embodying the teachings, and then carrying it forward out into the world. This is a whole path of practice. Uh, so um, I see that at least one person has raised their hand. I hope others will. And um, we can share some time in meeting here. If you have questions or ways in which this um, has called forward something in you and you'd like to meet, Hi, Susan. Morning, Plant. That was a beautiful lesson. And the visuals were very helpful. Oh, good. I, I was hopeful it'd be easier if you could see it. It is. Mm -hmm. it, it really was. Mm -hmm. I'm going to refer back to a couple of lessons in the past month and words that you said that concepts that have stuck with me that I've thought about and that have been real helpful. Mm -hmm. um, about a month ago, you talked about how the Buddha wanted to free us from unnecessary suffering. Right. I believe that was the word, yes. unnecessary suffering. Mm -hmm. And um, that implies that some suffering is going to happen. Right. Don't you think? Yes. Well, so yeah, you've lived long enough, and I've known you long enough to know there's some things that yeah. It's going to come along, and that's, that's just the way it is. The human condition being such as it is, we are going to suffer legitimately at that's times. Right. That's right. Yeah, if you didn't suffer with your daughter's death, that would be kind of strange, wouldn't it? It would. It yeah. would be. Yeah. But the unnecessary part is what I've been thinking about a lot. And yeah. um, I realize that I bring that upon myself. Uh, there's a situation uh, with an alienated uh, former daughter-in-law who mm -hmm. uh, has totally blocked me from her life. And prior to that, we had a loving relationship, you know. And uh, have, I don't know that 
But when you have the experience of being blocked, it's so frustrating, you know, when you never receive an answer. Yeah. And you never receive a response. And, uh, well, this call for is one of the most fierce practices, which is the practice with impotence or helplessness. Exactly. Sometimes there's actually nothing you can do. There isn't. And uh, you may have tried every strategy, every opportunity, every kindness, every confrontation, whatever. And sometimes you have to surrender to the yeah. fact that uh, that doesn't change your vow. I would like, I, I wish I could free the situation of the difficulty. I wish I could clear up whatever delusions are causing this rift. I wish I could yes. use it as a way to step through. I wish I could embody. But if there's not an opportunity, then you have to turn toward the parts in you that are suffering. That's the internal turn and help them knowing there's no, there's no external solution. No. It's, it's really it's, not. It's a... It also means why the paramita of patience or forbearance is really useful. Because sometimes we just have to stay with something, sometimes for a long time, not knowing if it will change. It's the demand that life change and be the way we want it that causes the suffering. Correct. It has it's, to, it's, it's good, it's better. It's like, well. It's like it's not supposed to be like this, you know? It's not supposed to be this way, but yet it is. Oh, really? Apparently it is. <laughs> it's not supposed to because it doesn't match our preference. That's right. And I've said often, one of my little lines, I said, this practice will not necessarily make your life more pleasant, but it will make it possible. Well, that, and thank you for that. Um, one other comment that's been super helpful is talking about sitting as opposed to meditating just calling it sitting and that means I don't have it to have any great deep thoughts or right. anything like that. I mean, I might, but might. Uh, when I think of just sitting, that feels so much more doable Good. And, and so much more, well, I can do that. You know, I can do that and I can just be still and I can just sit. Right. And that has been a huge relief. Good. People bring all kinds of ideas about meditation being some sort of instrumental activity to get a result, and you can either do it right or do it wrong. Yes. Rather than, I'm going to sit, I'm going to bring all my energy to it, I'm going to sit upright and wholehearted, I'm going to bring myself to the moment. But without, uh, Suzuki Roshi used to call it no gaining idea. Without the sense of gain, just being present. Yes. One of our teachers often says, if you sit and you're awakened, the sitting has no preference for it. If you sit and you're deluded, the sitting has no aversion to it. It's just sitting. And there may be moments of good, bad, right, wrong, awakened, and you still realize you were the, the container for it all instead of the content of the coming and going and moving around. Your true basic awareness 
is that big spacious container which we sit in the middle of. And that's a different place from which to meet life. One quick question. Are you supposed to be just as still as you can be when you when you sit? Are you supposed to? <laughs> well, I think the, the, the way I would say is um, if you have the aspiration to be still and upright, because remember, you're expressing stillness and silence, you're expressing this kind of freedom. So if you fidget and do unnecessary activities, it's usually a little signal that something is moving in you. I've got a pain, I've got an itch, I've got, it's like if you can't sit still, there's some energies, turn toward those energies from the stillness. It doesn't mean be rigid, don't hurt yourself, don't be artificially uncomfortable, but you probably will feel some discomfort if you sit for a while still. See what it's telling you. But don't, don't be harsh with yourself at all. The stillness is just because we distract ourselves with uh, embodied activity so easily. And there's a different energy from just sitting simply upright and, and still and just kind of, you know, hang out. It's a different energy. Yes. You know, so to give, bring yourself with a little energy to it, but don't be harsh or rude or really hard on yourself in any way. Thanks Thank for your you question. so much, Lance. Thanks so much. You know, I love you. Love you too. There are times when we come to the end of these sessions and there are people lined up waiting, but I don't get to. And now's your chance. <laughs> we have some space. I hope that uh, what I offer today didn't uh, dissuade you from coming forward or asking your questions. I'd love to hear from some folks who we haven't heard from before. But anyone is... Uh, invited. Can't quite see you, John, or hear you. <clears throat> okay. It looked like there's something over your camera lens. <laughs> You're right. That was to give me privacy at other times when I didn't it work. Okay. I got I had quite a, private. <laughs> yeah, I have a post-it note there. Okay. Um, yeah, I didn't uh, I keep thinking I want to say something about thought main and what I'm doing is learning. But since you invited us to uh, uh, to share, 
Yeah, I had uh, difficulty with this notion of a vow to do things that are impossible. I'm very literal minded in that sense. And so a couple of my friends have taken those vows, uh, friends whose opinions I value, and but I couldn't take them. Mm-hmm. Did them and I'm not sure if I will be at some t- able to at some time or not, but it helps uh, to say what is meant by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our community, uh, I'm not sure that if I told somebody outside the community that, what struck me is it would not be the truth. And uh, so... Uh, yeah, it takes uh, the, sometimes the relationships and the experience of practice for it to become understandable. Otherwise, it might seem a bit foreign or too strange. Or, um, But taking um, a vow isn't just about the vow. It's also about who takes it. There are parts of me that say, I can't take that, I can't do it. And for those parts, that's actually true. They can't. But if I can find that place in me that is of the nature of a Buddha, that is a little space, a little fullness, say, oh, I can align myself with these aspirations. And I can dedicate myself to this direction. But the small, like you said, the literal parts of us really can't do it. You're right. And so it's not just the vow that is sometimes the uh, the sticking point. It's who's attempting to take it. That helps uh, in a couple of ways. One, about the parts. Uh, one is we had a couple come to our church a while back that went around the country. The woman was an atheist and the man was not. And he talked about it said, <clears throat> okay, in, day, in daytime language, you know, a person can say, I don't believe this or that or the other. Then there's nighttime language where you're close to God as a person, person and so on. Mm-hmm. That's one. <clears throat> the second thing that strikes me as funny still about the parts, <clears throat> I was in uh, relationship counseling. And, uh, well, of course, my partner and I were. And uh, at one point, she is so different from me in the way she thinks about things. At one time, she... She said, John, you're a robot. Mm-hmm. And so I happen to have a session with a counselor by myself. It's usually the two of us. And I, I was saying, oh, oh, Jen, wasn't Jan, Jan's on previous way. Oh, so-and-so <clears throat> said you're a robot. And so that made me feel bad. And so I went in <clears throat> and talked with Betty Holmes and mentioned that. And she said, she didn't say, no, you're not a robot. She said, that's just a part of who you are. And so that helped. That's right. That's using parts language. The reason we bring it into practice is because it's extremely generous. It gives us space. It's very compassionate. It includes everything. It's not harsh or rejecting. And so it's really, really useful, I think. And so it aligns with our vow to use this kind of language. And you're saying you can feel how that is true for you. So that's good to hear. And there are there are ways in which different parts of you, including your nervous system, the way you're actually hardwired. Each of us have, you know, our hard hardware, but we have our software of how it works, you know, and all of us are different. And so someone who has a particular structure of their mind and body and nervous system may f- feel one way. Another person might feel another way. It has nothing to do with your nature. Nothing to do with your true nature. It has to do with its expression. 
she may have said you're a robot because from her perspective that's what it looks like but that's not how you feel at all it's the it's the nature of kind of how you're constructed and how it comes out sometimes but i know you well enough to know that you're very tender-hearted and you, you wouldn't be raising your hand and coming forward if you didn't have interest in these things okay yeah and by the way you, you look kind of great with long hair <laughs> well thank you uh you know um yeah, my grandson and I are both growing hair long. So you know, we'll see how this goes in the coming months. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's good to talk okay. to you. You too. Hi, Joan. Hello. Well, I wanted to take advantage of this opportunity to ask for a little review and just hear from you your understanding of the beautiful bounteousness of each of the refuges. Ah, you come back to the refuges a little bit, huh? Yes. Yeah. Well, as I said before, I think of the refuges as a place to discover and to find a place of faith or trust. We don't think of faith in Buddhism sometimes very much because it's not belief-based mm -hmm. like we do in some of our Judeo-Christian at least. Um, and since non-theistic, we think, well, what do you have faith in? And what do you, where do you place your trust? Maybe an easier way to say it. And so uh, taking refuge in Buddha says, you know, where I'm going to place my faith is in my true nature. And there are expressions of that in others that I see, a friend, a teacher, a grandmother, a child, a pet. You know, the Buddha nature flows in all kinds of places. And as I see it, I recognize it. Why do I recognize it? Because it sets up a resonance with the Buddha in me. And I can appreciate it. And it can call forward this. So I'm taking refuge in this nature as a Buddha all around me, whether it's in a teacher that I might have some reverence for or a loved one, uh, but also that I'm, I'm recognizing because it's of my own nature. And I take refuge in the fact that things work this way, the Dharma, the actual reality of how things work. The truth, not my ideas, not someone else's ideas, not philosophy, not theology. How does it actually, how does life actually work as I meet it as fully as I can, offer myself to it as fully as I can, and pay a clear-eyed attention, which is kind of tough sometimes, um, with enough care and discipline that I can understand how the world, how that world works. So I might, uh, I have faith in that. Not in some teaching that comes to me that I don't understand. That's why the Buddha said during his lifetime, don't believe what I say. Yeah. Try it and see if it's true. You know, so don't just take refuge in me as a Buddha, take refuge in the Dharma that I'm teaching you. And we realize from the Bodhisattva vow that this is a shared activity. So Sangha, number three, says, let's do this together. Take refuge in each other. That's why we come together in inquiry, isn't it? That's why we sit together. It's why you raise your hand. It's like, oh, this is something unfolding between. 
not not just in. This is something that happens in relationships. So I'm going to take refuge in my friends and my teachers and all those around me that help me, which might include actually the trees and the grasses and your own home and your, your grandchild and everybody else around you. Certainly David, you know, this is all your sangha, the people that care about you. So when we chant that part that says, I take refuge in Buddha, immersing body and mind deeply in the way, awakening true mind, it's a very poetic way of saying, I'm going to let myself be awash in the awakened mind of, of a Buddha. I take refuge in Dharma, entering deeply the merciful ocean of Buddha's way, the way of truth. I'm going to take refuge in that. And taking refuge in Sangha, bringing harmony to everyone, free from hindrance. It doesn't say you are um, always harmonious. <laughs> You're going to bring harmony um, with as little hindrance as possible, even as you are stumbling along. We do our best. And this uh, begins to help us understanding the, the, the unified nature of, of everything as we take refuge in what we can have faith and trust in instead of just our crazy thoughts and feelings and histories and conditioning. So does this touch the spot you hope to touch? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, it makes me want to take refuge in it. Yeah. What, what a beautiful place to be. Well, thank you for your question. That's wonderful. I hope others benefited from it. And if doing so, then your question was in support of your Bodhisattva vow. Thank you, Clint. Uh, Darcy, you're muted. Mm -hmm. There, there go. we go. Get so it's not so dark on that side. Oh. Oh. The light here. Mm. Well, like Joan, I thought I'd take advantage of this opportunity. Um. Wow. <laughs> you're so, looking very deeply. I can see in your eyes. There's the way you're looking. I'm feeling really, really grateful for this practice. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I just want to name this and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a holding of what's going on. Um, you know, as you know, my brother-in-law, he, uh, he sustained a, a very severe brain injury two and a half weeks ago, and he did pass a week ago. Oh, he did? He, uh, he did. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. And uh, the, all this uh, was very unexpected. Yeah, and, yeah I had an accident, right? Just people. Yes, know. it was an, a fall. Mm -hmm. uh, unexplainable, actually, fall. He was... Um, left the house to go walking. Um, and, uh, yeah. So it's been a lot, very unexpected. Uh, been a lot to take in, you know. Yeah, the great matter comes very close. Yes, it, it has been. And it, and it is. Uh, 
it's it's it is uh, I guess why I feel so grateful that I can hold it, be grateful for this life, very vibrant person yet, um, who is looking forward to living the good life like he always said that Ernie and I were doing, mm -hmm. soon to retire. Yeah. So, um, It's very similar to what Susan was bringing forward. Yeah. Gratitude and the freedom in the midst of the inevitable. It's, it, it's this huge pain. Yes, it is. And it's real. It's, it's very real. And it's held within. Yeah. And they aren't um, polar opposite. They're not one or the other. It's, they're together. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, when I talked to my sister this morning, I think she's getting to the point where there isn't just the very next thing that has to be done. And it's getting quiet enough that uh, she told me this morning that she just fell apart yesterday. And uh, we didn't grow up knowing how to fall apart. <laughs> and she's like, I, I don't, I, it was, I forget how she put it, but it was a um, little bit of fear that like, is it gonna go away or get better or, like, how long do I have to feel like this? <laughs> yep, that's the nature of grief, too. It comes in these big tsunami waves. Mm -hmm. and and is, is it gone, really? Is it going to come back? And, and we're on that edge between, you know, whether we have a, a breakthrough to a new space or do we have a breakdown? Yeah. And sometimes it kind of goes back and forth a little bit as we make our way forward. But she reached out to you or you reached out to her, and that's the refuge. Yeah. That's the relational aspect of our vow. We require each other. We can't do this alone yeah. as much as we want to. It's, it's become quite clear that that's what's going on. And mm -hmm. I don't know if I have a question other than, um, yeah. Well, just this reflection has been generous, and that's useful. It's been good. I, I, you're, enact, you're enacting what we've been talking about by offering this and letting me respond and letting everyone else. There are, you know, 75 people holding you. Mm -hmm. Yes, I really appreciate that. I think that's really what I wanted. Yeah, that's taking a refuge. Um, in. It's also something I haven't always been good at. Is letting other people hold me. Yeah. And I think that's what I wanted to ask is how to help my sister mm -hmm. let others hold her. Mm -hmm. And um, the main way uh, is to not noticed, don't do anything. Yeah. Uh, she's available. I, I think what she's doing, 
and I'll just say it, it, it's probably just normal, but she just, she's keeping only a very inner circle. Uh, she's only giving access to a very inner circle right now. That may be and her way. She says she does not want people to pity her. That that is, I think, um, yeah. So yeah, the um, the this is a whole other discussion. We don't have to go into it, but the projections that come to us when we're grieving from other people often say an awful lot about the other people's difficulty with loss. What what was that last thing you said? Uh, it's the tell, projections. The projections tell us a lot about the other people's difficulty with loss. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's actually, we don't feel like it pertains to us very much. So she's saying, I don't want the projections. Yeah. I'm going to take refuge in people I know who will just be there. Yeah. And not try to fix or do anything, but will be fully present. Yeah. Like that moment of looking you had in the beginning that in a way that was, that was enough. And then mm -hmm. there were words that came, but that was what's necessary. So just be present and then you'll see if something's necessary and then you can respond. Thank you. I, I think that I also needed that. Sometimes I feel an urge to explain something that she's feeling and I just need to not. Just listen, just be there. Have faith, have trust that it will move. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for hearing me and, and thanks to everyone on this call. Sure. Also, thank you. I always love when you bow to me because I see Suzuki Roshi. Yeah, there you go. And he had a uh, he had a crooked finger, a broken finger that was the same as Darcy's. And there's actually stained glass at San Francisco's Zen Center that shows him. So every time you bow, I feel him. I love it that you told me that. That means yeah. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And now here we are in the last minute um, of our time. And as usual, we have people waiting. I'm, um, I'm sorry, I can't get to everyone every single time. Uh, but I also want to be, um, have the fidelity to our, our time uh, limitations today. Thank you so much. I, I can't tell you how grateful I am that all of you show up uh, listen, offer yourself. <clears throat> when Darcy was speaking about being held, this is one of the things that we end up having faith in. In this situation, you can't see other people except maybe one person speaking or Jessica helping us or me. But there are all these people holding us and that's true all the time. All the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas throughout space and time, all of the Sangha that under, are out there all the time. You're being supported. And on these Zoom calls, we end up enacting that in a certain way. There's a point of contact here, a reference there, a lesson here, an intimacy or vulnerability there, but there's this large holding and that's what makes it possible. So we'll chant the four practice principles then. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream.
each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Many, many bows of gratitude. Thank you so much. Appamata's programs and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support makes such a huge difference. There's a link for contributions on the website. Thank you.